My name is Dr. Mark McCullough. I will be reading Canto 6 of Dante's Inferno, translated by Mark Musa. Regaining now my senses, which had fainted at the sight of these two who were kinsmen's lovers, a piteous sight confusing me to tears. New suffering and new sinners suffering appeared to me, no matter where I moved or turned my eyes, no matter where I gazed. I am in the third circle, in the round of rain, eternal, cursed, cold, and falling heavy, unchanging beat, unchanging quality. Thick hail and dirty water mixed with snow come down in torrents through the murky air, and the earth is stinking from the soaking rain. Cerberus, a ruthless and fantastic beast, with all three throats, howls out his dog-like sounds above the drowning sinners of this place. His eyes are red, his beard is slobbered black, his belly swollen, and he has claws for hands. He rips the spirit's flays and mangles them. Under the rain they howl like dogs, lying now on one side or the other as a screen, now on the other turning these wretched sinners. When the slimy Cerebus caught sight of us, he opened up his mouths and showed his fangs. His body was one mass of twitching muscles. My master stooped, and spreading wide his fingers, he grabbed up heaping fistfuls of the mud and flung it down into those greedy gullets. As a howling cur, hungering to get fed, quiets down with the first mouth food, mouthful of his food, busy with eating, wrestling with that alone. So it was with all three filthy heads of the demon Cerberus, used to barking thunder on these dark souls, these dead souls who wished that they were deaf. We walked across this marsh of shades beaten down by the heavy rain, our feet pressing on their emptiness that looked like human form. Each sinner there was stretched out on the ground, except for one who quickly sat up straight, the moment that he saw us pass him by. Oh, you there, being led through this inferno, he said, try to remember who I am, for you had life before I gave up mine. I said, the pain you suffer here perhaps disfigures you beyond all recognition. I can't remember seeing you before. But tell me who you are, assigned to grieve in this sad place, afflicted by such torture that worse there well may be, but none more foul. Your own city, he said, so filled with envy, its cup already overflows the brim, once held me in the brighter life above. Your citizens gave me the name of Chauco. And for my sin of gluttony I am damned, as you can see, to rain that beats me weak. And my sad, sunken soul is not alone, for all these sinners here share in my pain and in my sin. And that was his last word. Chauco, I said to him, your grievous state weighs down on me. It makes me want to weep. But tell me what will happen, if you know, to the citizens of that divided state. And are there any honest men among them? And tell me, why is it so plagued with strife? And he replied, After much contention, they will come to bloodshed. The rustic party will drive out the other by brutal means. Then it will come to pass the side will fall within three sons, and the other rise to power with the help of one now listing, both towards both sides. For a long time they will keep their heads raised high, holding the other down with crushing weight. No matter how these weep or squirm for shame, 
Two just men there are, but no one listens, for pride, envy, avarice are the three sparks that kindle in men's heart and set them burning. With this, his mournful words came to an end, but I spoke back. There's more I want to know. I beg you to provide me with more facts. Farinata and Tegiano, who are so worthy, Jacobo, Jacopo Rastucci, Arrigo, Mosca, and all the rest so bent on doing good. Where are they? Tell me what's become of them. One great desire tortures me, to know whether they taste heaven's sweetness or hell's gall. They lie below with blacker souls, he said, by different sins pushed down to different depths. If you keep going, you may see them all. But when you are once more in the sweet world, I beg you to remind our friends of me. I speak no more. No more, I answer you. He twisted his straight gaze into a squint and stared a while at me, then bent his head, falling to join his other sightless peers. My guide then said to me, You'll wake no more until the day the angel's trumpet blows, when the unfriendly judge shall come down here. Each soul shall find again his wretched tomb, assume his flesh, and take his human shape, and hear his fate resound eternally. And so we made our way through the filthy mass of muddy shades and slush, moving slowly, talking a little about the afterlife. I said, Master, will these torments be increased or lessened on the final judgment day, or will the pain be just the same as now? And he, remember your philosophy. The closer a thing comes to its perfection, more keen will its pleasure or its pain. Although the cursed race of punished souls shall never know the joy of true perfection, more perfect will their pain be then than now. We circled round that curving road while talking of more than I shall mention at this time, and came to where the ledge begins descending. There we found Plutus, mankind's arch-enemy. So this will be a f shorter discussion in part because the Canto 6 is the shortest of all the cantos we've encountered thus far. It's one of the shortest cantos in all the Divine Comedy. Why is it so short? Some critics have said that Dante is still experimenting with his style and had intended on uh, creating shorter stanzas for uh, the dramatization of each of these sins and then gave that plan up around uh, Canto 20 of the Inferno, but that's just speculation. Here we're uh, transforming uh, transferring uh, the uh, uh, the journey from lust to gluttony, from circles two to circle three. Uh, we're still within the uh, sins of incontinence and the sins of desire, desire that is superior or made superior to reason. Um, and so, uh, what we'll what we'll look at here is um, the figure first. Of, first, we'll look at gluttony um, as a as a contrapasso, a gluttony as the description. Dante offers it, look at Cerberus the Beast and compare it to uh, its classical origins. We'll then move uh, towards uh, really the first direct um, uh, commentary that Dante makes on the political scene, his personal political scene in Florence through the character of um, uh, Chaco. And then we'll finish up with uh, this comment that um, Virgil makes about the philosopher in the conclusion. 
Um, there are differences uh, among the translations, of course, as there always is. I, I didn't see any uh, that really uh, jumped out at me. And so I'll be referring uh, primarily, actually exclusively, to the Musa here. So wh where are we? We're in uh, the circle of gluttony, and the description here is of a, a piteous sight of constant rain. Um, and Dante notices that this rain is unrelenting, uh, eternal cursed and cold, falling heavy. And so the, the, the punishment, in part, uh, to those who are in the circle of gluttony is to be constantly pelted by this thick and, uh, hail and dirty water. And Dante seems to have a particular aversion to the, the water that is most foul um, and says here that it's the most disgusting thing he's seen thus far. But hold on, reader, there'll be plenty more. Um, and so Dante uh, describes this sort of piteous sight of the earth and the stinking, um, of the soaking rain that is constantly falling. Um, and it's quite a contrast to what we'd come to expect from uh, earlier representations of hell, which often included fire. And so this has an unchanging quality, this, this rain, this muck. Um, and that muck, of course, is the, is the food itself uh, that, that both the Cerberus and the, uh, and the damned will eat. Um, it's interesting, uh, one thing to note, in Dante is that he's he's not a formulaic writer. He it gives a description of where we're at, and yet he has discussions in that place uh, about uh, other topics that you may not have even expected to come directly from the subject. In this case, the subject of gluttony. So keep, uh, bear in mind that as you read through this canto and the cantos to come, um, Cerberus is a uh, ancient monster. Uh, we find Cerberus in Book 6 of Virgil's Aeneid, and the description in the Aeneid is in lines 550 through 559. Um, and there the Sibyl will um, throw a honey, honey cake filled with drugs in order to, um, in order to uh, distract Cerberus' um, attention from Aeneas' journey to the underworld, and Cerberus will then consume it and, and then fall asleep. Here in, in Dante, Cerberus uh, it will be, will be uh, distracted by muck. Um, Virgil will scoop up some of the muck and throw it, um, and he'll open his mouth and show his fangs um, and, and eat, eat of this uh, muck um, that, he is, uh, that he is so excited to uh, get, a, get a hold of. Um, the difference here is that, you know, in, in, in Id, there's... Uh, that, that Cerberus is kind of a, it's, it's this sort of figure, this mythological figure who has some kind of dignity to, to him. And so it becomes a, a plot point of distraction and sort of a kind of uh, the intelligence of the, of the Sybil, but also of, of Aeneas in order to create a diversion, sort of like in, a, in war or, or in trickery. Here in Dante, it's not that at all. Cerberus is considered to be a beast and eating something that is not even a good, right? It's just sort of like shit. It's just like this awful dirt muck. Um, and it, there's nothing beautiful or good about it. The Cerberus is also described as the great worm. And this great worm is an analogy, or not an analogy, but an allusion to uh, Satan, Satan himself, who is the great worm. 
And the three heads, of course, takes us uh, to the, the, the number three, which is also a uh, reference, to, uh, which we will see further down the road um, in the Inferno to Satan, who also will have, uh, spoiler, three heads. And so, um, so these three heads, these three throats, uh, are satiated by the muck. Um, and as Virgil scoops up and throws this uh, fistful of mud, he uh, throws it down his greedy, his greedy gullets. Um, and so he, he, the beast, is the representation here, the arc, the prototype of gluttony. He's howling, he's voracious, he eats muck. Um, and it's all irrational. Um, it's, there's nothing rational about it. It's like the phrase, you know, we live, uh, live to eat. The gluttonous, they live to eat. They don't eat to live. We don't know who Chaco is. Um, that's the that's the sort of the summary of the comment commentary on uh, the figure of Chaco. Uh, the word in Italian means pig, and so it may be um, it may be a made up name for this um, this gluttonous this gluttonous character, this Florentine glutton. This is an extraordinary way that Dante introduces these damned and then lets them have their say and then they they return back to their damnation and it always just um, just just so surprises me how brilliant it all is um, uh, Chaco will uh, will reach out to to Dante and ask um, if he recognizes him now gluttony a gluttony so disfigures the human uh, the human face that Dante does not recognize him, um, and Dante makes a pretty, you know, sympathetic uh, as a response, saying, uh, you know, maybe because you're in so much pain, it disfigures you, and it, and I can't recognize you. He'll also uh, not be be unable to recognize the gluttonous in Purgatory as well, and so Dante seems to suggest that that the, even our physical bodies are disfigured through. Um, our desire to to eat more than than our due. Um, Dante asks the right question of him in a way. This is uh, in in contrast to uh, Canto Five with Francesca and Paolo, where he will get it all wrong. He'll ask the wrong questions and often get the wrong answers. But here he's starting to ask the right questions by asking about him. Um, Virgil wants Dante to ask the right questions and receive the information that'll help Dante himself um, um, avoid sin and avoid, uh, in this case, gluttony. So Dante asks him, um, "How did he get there? How did how did he get to this place uh, that is so um, that is so foul?" Um, and then he asks him to, you know, uh, are there other others as well? Um, and this is the first time that Dante directly discusses uh, Florence, his, his, his hometown, his home city. Um, and uh, Ch Chaco says in uh, line 49, he says, Your own city, he said, was so filled with envy, its cup already overflows the brim, once held me in the brighter life uh, above. And this is when he gives his name. He tells that he has the sin of gluttony and, uh, and the rain uh, that comes down on him. And Dante seems to also pity Chaco, uh, of course, wrongly, right? As we saw in Canto V, we're not supposed to uh, pity the damned, but he says, despite that, he says he, 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 uh, his grievous state weighs down on him and makes him want to weep. 
but unlike uh, Canto V, Dante does not uh, fully fall into the trap uh, that Francesca sort of sets for him there and gets him to pity even more. But by pitying uh, Jaco, Dante is able to get more information out of him. And the information that he receives from him is prophetic. Now, throughout the Divine Comedy, um, we, we see that the, the dead or the souls can predict the future. And even the damned can make prophecies. And this is the first example in Canto VI of a, what is considered to be sort of a personal prophecy versus a kind of more global or, or world prophecy. And what I mean by personal is that it'll be about Dante and his circle uh, and not necessarily the, the, the future of mankind. The dead can see the past and they can see the future, uh, but they can't see the present. Uh, this is fascinating um, that Dante, uh, I don't, he's, this is not entirely original in Dante, this is already there in Aeneas, uh, with Aeneas in, in the Aeneid, and it's also there in Homer. Uh, but it's, it's so fascinating that the vision of the damned uh, is not clouded in terms of, of the future. And, and Chaco goes into this kind of like trance-like state as if the prophecy as if, as if seeing the future sort of exhausts him, and by the end of this passage, he's, you know, like returning to sleep. So Dante asks him a question, you know, about, you know, um, he asks him a number of questions. He says, you know, what will, ha what will happen to, to Florence? What will happen to, to this divided, he calls this the divided state. And then he says, and then he asks, you know, are there any honest men there? And finally, um, why is why is Florence so so plagued with with this kind of strife? Jaco gives the prophecy, and the prophecy does have a historical um, reality to it. The Divine Comedy begins uh, during Holy Week, which would have been April of thirteen hundred. Um, the, the the poem is actually written after this, but it gives Dante the place is that is thirteen hundred uh, during April. Um, in May of 1300, uh, Florence again uh, uh, experiences a division between two political factions. Uh, we'll talk more about this in future lectures, and we'll need to really unpack the political scene during Dante's time. But just for right now, what Dante is asking about is this, um, is this time of relative peace uh, right at the end of the... Um, right at the end of the 13th century, um, rather, I'm sorry, the 12th century. Um, this, this, this time of relative peace that then was followed by, in May of 1300, uh, a, a new kind of conflict that came up between the white and the black, or the, the Cerchus and the Donati. And, and Dante himself was sympathetic with the Cerchus, or the white, uh, white Guelph group. This, this is, these are both Guelphs, but these are both uh, factions within the Guelph party in Florence. And Dante was sort of on the white side, although he had married someone in the Donati family. And so Dante himself is sympathetic towards the white. But um, what, uh, what Chaco says here is that there's a division, and this will begin a much longer period of bloodshed. And of course, we know, uh, when we study Dante's history, that this, uh, uh, this conflict uh, during May of uh, 1300 will eventually lead to Dante's exile. So when Dante asks him uh, to speak of 
Florence and this period of time. He's really asking him about a, a moment in the Florence's um, social history which will affect Dante's life uh, considerably. He also mentions that there are a few good men, right, but they will not make a difference, that, um, that the, the, the citizens of Florence will not be able to help themselves. They'll, they'll choose sides. This is Dante's uh, sort of um, attack on um, a, a kind of, you know, team membership in politics, that, that when you have these kind of civil strife, when you have the civil strife, when you have a division within the community, there can be no good that comes of it. And what are the reasons for, what are the reasons for this division, Dante says? Um, he goes back to pride, envy, and avarice. So pride, envy, and avarice are the reasons why um, the Florence is, uh, is involved in so much bloodshed. And, um, and then what is mentioned is, and I won't get too uh, detailed into this because it, it, it looks forward to several of the characters that we find later on in the Inferno, but in passage uh, in line 79 through 81, Dante through Jaco mentions several figures who uh, will, will, will populate hell. And these are characters uh, that Dante knew personally. Um, I, I say I'm not gonna mention it, and then I'll just mention one, but Farinata, we will see in Canto 10, who's a heretic. Um, but these figures, uh, important at Dante's time and important during this political strife uh, in, in the city of Florence, we will see again. I find most compelling that once Chaco is finished with this prophecy, once he's finished telling, he then uh, descends back into uh, his sort of bestial state. And Dante makes this, um, this poetic comparison often during the Inferno where he'll compare human, what it means to be human versus what it means to be a beast. And, hum and those who are damned are really in a bestial, sort of in a bestial state. They, they've sort of lost their humanity. And so just at the ending, starting at line 91 with Chaco, he says, he twisted his straight gaze into a squint and stared a while at me, then bent his head, falling to join his other sightless peers. So it's, it's almost, again, as if Chaco is exhausted through giving this prophecy, and the light kind of leaves his eyes, and then he stares off, and then he returns to being a pig, really at a trough, just uh, slurping up the muck. Towards the end of this passage, Dante asks about um, Dante asks about the um, s some of the afterlife and some of these theological questions that would have haunted anyone who thought about the last judgment. The, according to Dante, and we can see it in this Canto Six, is that this is and this is complicated. But the the bodies uh, of the damned are not bodies; they're sh they're sort of the conceptualization of the shade without the bodies. But once the last judgment is over. The bodies then will join, um, will will join the sh these shades and be combined yet again, and Dante asks whether or not the torments will be increased or lessened on Judgment Day, and for those of us who are interested in Saint Thomas Aquinas, this is a direct uh, allusion to the De Anima, um, and I'll read the uh, I'll read the direct allusion here in Latin. Um, 
And this comes straight from Mazzoni, who Hollander credits in his copy, or in his tr uh, translation of Dante, who found the passage in Aristotle's De Anima, which uh, reads, Quanto anima est perfectior tanto exert plures perfectas oper operaciones et diversas. And the translation he offers is, as the soul becomes more perfect, so it is more perfect in its several operations. So this is kind of like a, one of these scary things where Virgil says, well, you remember Aristotle, he says, you know, the following. In other words, uh, that, that yes, indeed, the a pain, the suffering of the damned will increase uh, because even the pain itself will become as it tends towards its, um, this is sort of poetically, its non-being, it will become more perfect in its pain. Pretty frightening stuff. So the canto is important because, again, it directly references Florence's issues uh, as a city of kind of misgovernment. It's a divided city. It's a discord city. And when we think of the medieval, the ancient and medieval sort of world picture, we always see that the, 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 the polis, the city, the king within the city, or the king that presides over the city, is in the same state as the human person. And if, and if there's discord in the city, there's discord in the person, there is, um, civil, um, there is civil, sort of a civil war that goes on in the soul. And so all of these different spheres of human activity, both large and small, are reflected in the discord. And how, what does this all have to do with gluttony? And why, why is there a discussion of the divided city here? Well, there, there is no answer to that directly, I don't think. I, I just think that Dante takes the opportunity to discuss these things. But you could generally say that because the desire of the gluttonous is um, overwhelming to the reason, so too that the city where passions are um, chosen over the relative stability and good governance we see to the same strife. So that gluttony is a kind of picture of, um, of our own appetite. Maybe not appetite for food uh, or uh, honey cakes or muck, but our appetite for, for power.